Hey, good, good morning. Before we dive into the message this morning, I just want you to know the last week that we had in the mountains with our high school students was unbelievable. It really is kind of one of those deals where you realize, kind of like that old, old song from our generation or my generation maybe, is uh, the future's so bright you got to wear shades. This is an amazing, amazing group of young people that God has entrusted us with, and they are phenomenal. That's the first thing. Second thing is, I'm going to tell you something. Those of us who go by the name of Grown Up, we better buckle up because this bunch is coming hard, and they are absolutely amazing. So thank you for being the kind of church that supports and lifts up and calls out the next generation. It's a cool thing that we get to be a part of. It's phenomenal. Let's have a word of prayer as we dive into God's Word together. Father, it is great to be in your house this morning. May we never take it for granted, God, that we get to gather with the family of faith, that we get to hear from you. God, I thank you so, so much for what you've already done in this service, for the presence that you have graced us with in worship, that we know you are here in this place. Father, we ask that you would do what only you can do in our lives individually and in our life collectively as a family of faith. I pray, God, that you would speak through me, that you would speak in spite of me in this time for your purposes and for our good. We ask it all in the name that is above every name, Jesus, who makes it all possible. And everybody said, amen. Amen. I want to ask you to go back in your memory bank with me. I want you to go back to when we were kids, and usually it was another grown-up who would ask us this question. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Do you remember being asked that question? Most of us probably can remember asking it more recently than we were asked, but I'm just curious. Just show of hands, just yeah, shout out. What was something that you said? What was it you wanted to be when you were growing up? Somebody raise you, just shout it out. A doctor. An NFL player. I love it. Who else? A Christian singer. I like that. What else? Race car driver. That's what I'm talking about. Somebody in the earlier service said pastor. I said, you need to be aiming a lot higher than that. What else? Firefighter. Firefighter. Of course, firefighter. Anybody want to be an astronaut when you were a kid? You remember that one? I remember when, when we would ask Emily this question, especially in fourth grade, it was during a campaign cycle, and Emily announced to our family, she said, I want to be a mommy, a teacher, and the president of the United States. And, and I'll never forget Julie asking me later at night as we were going to excuse, what if she goes into politics? I said, honey, I'm not worried about Emily going into politics. The first time she has to compromise, she will be out with her hair on fire. Don't worry about it. But, you know, there, there was something in us as kids that instinctively knew how to dream. Whether you wanted to be a president or a firefighter or an astronaut or the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, there was something inside of us that, that, that just knew to dream. And, and I don't know where it happens. I think I kind of understand some of why it happens. But somewhere along the way, as we grow up and, and maybe as as life and the challenges and the, the responsibilities crowd in, we, we somehow forget. We somehow lose the ability. We lose the capacity to dream that we had as kids. But I believe with everything that I have that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, if anything, 
ought to compel us, ought to, ought to drive us to dream incredible, amazing God dreams for our lives, through our lives. The, the passage of Scripture that we have literally etched in stone on the cornerstone of our building here is that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine in our lives. And we are to give him glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. Amen. That that's, that's who God is. That's what he does. I think that, that I've shared this with you before, but I think it bears repeating that if, if you were to have a conversation with God and God was to say, tell me the biggest dream you have for your life. Tell me, tell me the greatest thing that you could possibly imagine. Picture your life 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and just paint the greatest picture you can imagine. I think God would, would listen to us with bated breath. I think he would, he would be into the conversation, and when we finish this description of our grandest dreams, I think God would lean into us with love and grace and say, <laughs> that is such a cute little picture. Now let me show you what I want to do. I think that's how God looks at our dreams. I think God has a dream for our lives bigger than we can ever even imagine. And as we continue the series that we're in, Biography, this morning, we're going to go to the life of a man who was known for amazing dreams. I'm talking about the biblical character of Joseph. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to get there in just a second. And as you're looking up Genesis 37, I want to make sure that we understand we're not talking about Joseph, the, the earthly father of Jesus. We're talking about Joseph, one of 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph, who, who was born into a really interesting family. And I think as we go through this this morning, we're, we're going to discern and discover some amazing principles from the life, from the historical account of Joseph's life that matter to us who live about 35, 3,600 years after Joseph walked the face of the earth. But before we get to the life of Joseph, I think it's really important that we establish some, some discrepancies, that we make a distinction between God dreams and me dreams. How, how many of you know that, that there's a difference between what God wants for our lives and sometimes what we want for our lives? Can I just see a show of hands if you're aware of that reality? You know, I was 16 years old, and I had grown up in the church. I, I was one of those kids. We, we were there when I was in the, in the basket, and that was just what our family did. And so when I was 16 years old, I knew a lot of the Bible stories. I knew a lot of the Bible verses. But I, I remember being 16 years old and discovering a new verse when Jesus said, if two or more of you on earth agree on something, ask for it in my name, and I will give it. And I remember being 16 thinking, well, if I can just get my best friend Gary Peel to agree with me, God will give me the Mustang that I want to drive when I get my driver's license. That was a me dream. I, I quickly discerned that that was not a God dream for my life. And the fact of the matter is we have to make sure that we understand what a God dream actually looks like. I, I want to invite you to take out your program that you got when you came in and open to the notes panel there on that, in that program, I want to give you five things to just keep in mind as we go through the life of Joseph about the reality of God dreams versus me dreams. Number one, God dreams bigger 
than you and I dream. God dreams are bigger than we can dream. That's the first thing. It, It will eclipse anything that we could come up with in our finite minds because God is infinite. He is perfect. He sees everything. And so he dreams bigger than we dream. Number two, God dreams are better than we can dream. God dreams are better than we can dream. Number three, God dreams are tailored. They are specifically tailored for your life, for my life, for where we are and where we come from. Number four, God dreams are collaborative. God dreams are always collaborative. First of all, with God. He he invites us to collaborate, to co-labor. Just because God has a dream for us doesn't mean that he just hands it to us. He invites us to participate and to work toward his dreams. And then number five, God dreams are always phased. God dreams are phased. They happen in stages. He reveals those dreams to us over time. I have never received a roadmap for the next 10 years. I've never, I've never heard of somebody who God plants a dream in their heart and then shows them how he's going to make that happen step A through step Z. It always happens in phases. As we take one step of faith, as we take another step, God begins to reveal it in phases and in stages. And, and all of these characteristics, these qualities of a God dream, you see at play in the life of Joseph. In Genesis chapter 37, we pick up Joseph's story when he's a relatively young man. The Bible says he's about 17 years old. And Joseph is born into amazing dysfunction. How many of you have ever heard of a dysfunctional family? Not yours personally, but you know people. Can I just see a show of hands? You, you know that it happens, right? Well, Joseph's family dysfunction begins with the fact that his father, Jacob, had two wives. That's a bad idea. I always love it when people go, well, they had multiple wives in the Bible, and nowhere does the Bible say, this is a good idea. Two wives. Just the concept exhausts me. Like, I can't even imagine. Think about having two husbands. Ooh, there's nothing good in that. So anyway... Jacob, Joseph's father, has two wives, and to make matters worse, he plays favorites with his wives and his kids. He grew up and married, first of all, Leah. He was tricked and duped into marrying Leah, but he really wanted to marry her sister, Rachel. I mean, can you, that's just, that's just the backstory of where we're going with Joseph. So that, that's what we're born into. That's where we're, we're landing with our, our encounter with Joseph. And then he plays favorites. He likes the children that he had with Rachel more than he likes the children he had with Leah. And Joseph was his absolute favorite. He was the apple of his daddy's eye. I mean, Jacob thought that Joseph could do no wrong. The Bible says that he went so far as to, to weave together a coat of many colors, a, a really brightly covered tunic that, that, that Joseph kind of wore around with some pride. And, and and all of his other brothers were like, Joe, what's up, bruh? And they're like, well, you know, dad says I'm the favorite, so I get to wear this thing all the time. And it was this incredible scene of dysfunction into which Joseph starts to contribute to the dysfunction. The Bible says that Joseph began to have dreams that he would one day rule over his brothers. 
specifically that his brothers would bow down to him. Look at what the Bible says in Genesis 37. It says that one night, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Verse 6, listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, oh, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. <clears throat> How many of you have a brother or sister? Can I just see a show of hands? I want you to just put yourself in Joseph's brother's sandals for a second. Think about that. Think if your brother or sister came to you and said, you're not going to believe this. I had a dream that God gave me. You're going to bow down to me one day. Now, I've got two little brothers. They're not little anymore. They're 50. But they're little to me. They're younger. If my brothers, Gil and Pat, came to me and said, you will one day bow down to me, I'd have been like, oh, no. We're fitting to go. I mean, that, that would not have gone over well. It did not go over well with Joseph's brothers. And the Bible says that they grew to hate him, so much so that they plotted to kill him. Now, I don't know what kind of dysfunction you've heard of or come out of, but I want you to just kind of get that locked into your frontal lobe to understand this is what Joseph was born into and contributed to. And yet he was, in fact, living the dream. He was, in fact, following God's dream for his life. But there's something really important here. You have to be really, really discerning. You have to be really wise about who you share your dreams with. Because dreams are a precious, precious, fragile thing, particularly when they come from God. And Joseph was not extremely discerning in sharing this with his brothers at this point in their lives. There was already kind of that built-in resentment because he was daddy's favorite. And then he just kind of poured some gasoline on that fire and said, you're not going to believe this, but one day you're going to bow down to me. And so they plotted to kill him. The story continues, and the Bible says that one day the older brothers, the ten older brothers, were out tending Jacob's flocks. Jacob was a wealthy man. He had a lot of, of flocks. And he sent Joseph to check up on the older brothers. And they saw him coming from a long way off, and they had this plot to kill him. And, and as they saw him coming, they, they kind of leaned back and went, eh, here comes the dreamer. What's up, Joe? Had any good dreams lately? And they had this plot to kill him. But one brother, their brother Reuben, spoke up and said, we don't need to kill the guy. Let, let's don't kill him. And at that exact moment, there was a caravan of slave traders coming by. And Reuben had the bright idea, let's don't kill him. Let's just sell him off as a slave. Oh, thanks, Reuben. We really appreciate that. That's a nice gesture. And that's exactly what they did. They ripped off this coat of many colors. They dipped it in animal's blood, sold him as a slave, and then went back to their father, Jacob, and said, something happened to Joe. He was killed by a, by a vicious animal. Here's his coat of many colors. And this is where the story begins. This, this does not sound like a guy who's living the dream, does it? This is somebody who is forgotten by his family of origin. Somebody who is forgotten by those closest to him. Somebody who is mourned by his father who's being misled to believe that he's died. And the caravan 
hauls Joseph away. The Bible says that he goes almost 225, 250 miles away to Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, he is then sold into slavery into the house of a man by the name of Potiphar. Now, Potiphar is an interesting cat. Potiphar was the second in command in all of the Egyptian empire. He was the captain of the guard to Pharaoh's army. And Joseph is now a slave working in Potiphar's house. But I want to show you something that happens in Potiphar's house as the dream continues. Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, it says this. The Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. Here's, here's the thing that, that we've got to learn from this moment in Joseph's life. God dreams. God dreams for our lives are fueled by God's favor but they are steered by our skills. God dreams are fueled by the favor of God, but they are steered by the skills that we develop as we get good at something. Joseph was good at managing Potiphar's household. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that he was so good, Potiphar worried about nothing else except what to have for dinner at night. Let me ask you a question. Anybody in the house in the last week, has anybody here like me has anybody experienced any stress or anxiety about anything? Can I just see a show of hands? Okay, first of all, keep your hands up for just a second. Go ahead and keep your hands up. Look around the room. You ain't alone. You are not alone. But I want you to think about how cool would it be if the only thing you had to worry about was what you were going to eat for dinner? I don't know, steak or lobster? Serve? Both. I mean, that was Potiphar's life. That was all he had to worry about. Now, we're fixing to find out that Potiphar did, in fact, have some other things to worry about. He just didn't know it yet, namely his wife. We're getting there. Just hang on a second. But I want to point out to you that Joseph was faithful, not only faithful to God, he was faithful in his work. He, he developed skills. He was good at what he did, so good that Potiphar didn't even worry about anything in the household because Joseph made the trains run on time. He was effective in his work and what he did. That's, that's just one expression of his faithfulness to God. But there was a problem in Potiphar's household, namely Mrs. Potiphar. Let me show you what happens here. Look in Genesis 39. This is in verse 6. Verse 6, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. In the original Hebrew, you would translate that phrase, Joseph was haught, H-A-W-T. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Joseph, can we just take a time out real quick? Let's give it up for Joseph. Think about this. Potiphar, he's wealthy, he's powerful. Mrs. Potiphar probably wasn't ugly. And she says, she demands, come sleep with me. Joseph's a 17, 18-year-old young man. And he refused. That's, I don't care who you are, that's impressive. 
Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you, hello, because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Isn't it true? Who you are when no one's around is who you really are. I mean, Joseph's 250 miles from home. His family is nowhere around. Nobody who shares his faith or belief system is even around, would even know if he gave in to this temptation, to this demand from Mrs. Potiphar. And yet he says, no, he refused. And I think embedded in Joseph's story is another reality that, that we would do well to remember. That when we, the, the surrender of our sexuality to God refuels and reveals our faith silently and absolutely. When we surrender our sexuality to God, it refuels and reveals our faith silently and definitively. No doubt about it. When we understand that, that God has given us this gift of sex, this was part of what we talked about with our students this past week in Colorado. God's given us this gift of sex. He is pro-sex. He's so pro-sex that he wants us to guard and protect this gift in, in the context and the friendly confines of covenant marriage. One man, one woman, one life. This is God's best. This is what we aim for. This is, what we, this is the, the, the vision that we have for this area of our lives. Joseph understood that to violate that would be to violate God's best for his life. And you see this repeatedly throughout his life. He settled for nothing less than God's best. And just for the record, if, if, we have truly surrendered our sexuality to God, then most everything else will follow also, just as a general rule and as a general observation. But you see this even as a 17, 18-year-old young man, handsome, well-built, but not willing to settle for anything less than God's best. Well, the story continues to unfold and for Joseph, at least situationally, it continues to unravel. It goes from bad to worse because Potiphar's wife waits for one day when there's no one else in the house and Joseph is going about his duties. And she again tries to seduce him. But Joseph does the most spiritual thing that you can possibly do when you encounter sexual temptation. The most spiritual thing you can do. He begins to run. He just, he just runs. But as he turns to run, she grabs his cloak and holds it, and he just keeps running. He doesn't go back for the cloak. He just keeps running. And Mrs. Potiphar develops an incredible, incredibly devious scheme. Holding on to Joseph's cloak, she believes she has the trump card. She believes that she has something that she can hold against him. And when her husband, Mr. Potiphar, comes home from work, she goes into drama mode, like, I can't believe you brought this Jewish slave into our home. <laughs> he tried to rape me, and here's his coat to prove it. She falsely accuses him of rape. Potiphar, as you might imagine, is not happy with this. Has Joseph arrested and thrown into prison. So he goes from being hated by his brothers, 
to sold as a slave, to now thrown in Egyptian prison. And yet, even as the story continues to unfold and apparently unravel, look at what happens to Joseph's life. It's amazing. Genesis 39, 21 says this, But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Again, you can throw at a God dream whatever you want to. When you remain faithful, God dreams do not get derailed by detours. God dreams do not get derailed by detours unless you let them. You, you have the choice. I have a choice about how I'm going to respond to the detour. But the fact of the matter is when you chase a God dream in a fallen world, that God dream will experience detours. There will be setbacks. But the key, the key is Joseph's faithfulness. No matter what was going on around him, he remained faithful. And even in prison, God gave him, again, his favor and his skills steered the God dream even through this detour. Because the Bible says that while he was in prison, he came upon two men who had been thrown in prison by Pharaoh. Pharaoh being the leader of the Egyptian empire, the most powerful person on the planet. He had thrown into prison his cupbearer, the one who would bring him his food and his wine every day after having tasted it to make sure that it wasn't poisoned, and his baker. So the royal cupbearer and the royal baker are there in prison, and Joseph comes upon them one day in deep, deep distress. And he asks them, what's wrong? And they said, well, we've had these, these two nightmares, and we can't figure them out. And Joseph says, well, I know a thing or two about dreams. Tell me what they are, and, and God will reveal what the dreams mean. And so the cupbearer says, well, my, my dream looked like this. I dreamed that I had three bunches of grapes and I was, I was serving Pharaoh. And, and I can't figure out what that means because Pharaoh was the one who threw me in jail. And Joseph says, well, I can tell you what that means. That means that three days from now, you will be reinstated to your position as the cupbearer and you will again be serving Pharaoh. The cupbearer was like, sweet, I look forward to getting out of prison. The baker hears this interpretation of the dream and says, my turn, my turn, do mine, do mine. And Joseph goes, what was your dream? He says, well, I had a dream that I had a basket on my head that had bread inside of it, and, and birds came and landed on the basket and started eating the bread out of the basket. And Joseph goes, well, your dream is not quite the same. Your dream means that three days from now, you will be summoned to Pharaoh. He will impale you on a pole, and birds will come and eat your flesh. Sorry. Both of Joseph's interpretations are exactly what happened. But before the cupbearer left the prison, Joseph said to him, remember me to Pharaoh. Don't forget your boy Joe who interpreted the dream. Remember me to Pharaoh. Cupbearer's like, I got you, bro. But the Bible says when the cupbearer was reinstated, he did in fact forget Joseph. As a matter of fact, Joseph spent another two years in prison. Two more years in prison. 
And it was at the end of that two years that Pharaoh began to have some dreams and nightmares. The Bible says that Pharaoh's dream, first dream, he was standing beside the Nile River, which represented all of Egypt's commerce, all of their agricultural power. That's how they watered their fields. And Pharaoh had a dream that seven beautiful, slick, fat cows were there grazing beside the Nile River. When all of a sudden, out of the Nile came seven skinny, scrawny-looking, West Texas drought-ridden cows. And they stood beside the seven healthy cows, and then the seven scrawny, skinny cows devoured the healthy ones. Then he had another dream that there were these seven heads of wheat, and they were ripe and luscious and full of life. But then there were seven other skinny, withered heads of wheat, and they devoured the healthy, luscious ones. And Pharaoh couldn't figure out what these dreams meant, and he summoned all of his magicians and sorcerers to come and interpret his dream, but none of them could. And Pharaoh's angst and anxiety grew, and the cupbearer who served Pharaoh every day saw this unfolding, and all of a sudden he remembered, oh, wait a minute, back in prison, the guy who interpreted my dreams, he was a Jewish slave, like... Jerry, Jonathan, uh, jo Joseph. Joseph was his name. And so Pharaoh summons Joseph to interpret his dreams. And Joseph, who comes to Pharaoh as a prisoner, as a prisoner, says, I cannot interpret your dreams, but God can. Tell me what they are. Pharaoh relates the dreams to Joseph. And Joseph, here is what God says your dreams mean. There will be seven years of an abundant Ample harvest. You won't even, you'll have trouble containing the next seven years of harvest. But that seven years of abundance will be immediately followed by seven years of a ruthless famine. There will be such a famine in the land that you will need to store up from those seven years of plenty and abundance in order to survive the seven years of famine. You need to appoint someone to, to manage the Egyptian storehouses for the next seven years so that you will survive the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh goes, I think I know the guy. You are the guy, Joseph. You will administrate my kingdom over the next 14 years. Here's, here's Pharaoh's words specifically. Genesis chapter 41. Pharaoh says to Joseph, you will be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Skip over to verse 57. And people from all around came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe throughout the world. At this moment, Joseph is elevated to the second in command. He is now boss to Potiphar. But there's, a, there's an incredible indicator. There's a little foreshadowing in that verse that we just read. The famine was severe throughout the world. People from all around came to Joseph for the grain. People from all around, like let's even say a radius of maybe, I don't know, 250 miles. Joseph's family back in Canaan, the, the strip of land that would become Israel later on, they were experiencing the results of the famine as well. And the Bible says that Jacob said to his, his sons who remained, why are you standing around looking at each other? 
I hear that there's grain in Egypt. Go get some so that we can live and survive. But I will not send my youngest son, Benjamin. Even still, Jacob's dysfunction continues. He still loves Benjamin like he loved Joseph. They were his favorites because they had come from his, his favorite wife, Rachel. And he says, you ten sons go. Benjamin stays here with me. And so the ten sons make the trip to Egypt. They get to Egypt and they find out, who do we go see about grain? And they said, there's a guy in, in the palace over there. He works for Pharaoh. He's second in command. And the ten brothers show up. And the Bible says that Joseph recognized his brothers, but his brothers did not recognize him. Now, I want you to just for a second put yourself in Joseph's sandals. Think about this. Here are these ten brothers who wanted to kill him, but instead just sold him off as a slave. They now come to you. They don't know that it's you. And ask for your hand to help them live and survive. He holds their future. He holds their literal survival in the palm of his hand. And th this is the moment. Th this is where you really have, I mean, you got them right where you want them. And the Bible says that Joseph began kind of a little, a little game of cat and mouse with them. He's like, well, do you have any other brothers? And they said, well, there's one back home with our father, but he couldn't come because he's daddy's favorite. We're just kind of the scrubs. We're JV. And Joseph says, if you will go get your youngest brother, then I will give you the grain. And they're like, no, no, we, we can't do that. He's daddy's favorite. Dad's already said we've lost one. Can't do that. He goes, well, I'm going to throw one of you in jail until you bring the youngest one here. And so this, this ruse, this charade goes on, the Bible says, for a couple of years. Finally, the brothers all appear in front of Joseph. They don't know that it's him. Joseph says, we will have a meal together. Y'all go into the dining hall. I'm going to go check on something. And the Bible says that Joseph broke down and wept bitterly. He wept over the loss of family, over what had happened between him and his brothers and his father. And the Bible says that he wept so loudly that his Egyptian attendants could hear him. His brothers were over in the dining hall. And so Joseph composed himself, and he cleaned up, and he washed his face, and he went into the dining hall and revealed himself to his brothers. He said, I am Joseph, that you have asked for this grain. The brother that you sold as a slave, I get to be the one who helps you now. Can you imagine being the brothers? Joe, hey, bud. Man, that, that whole slave thing, that was a prank gone bad, man. So I, I don't know what happened on that deal. And the Bible says that Joseph completely forgave them. So much so that he said, is my father Jacob still alive? And they said, he is. He said, go and get him and bring him here. And the Bible says that when Jacob and all of the brothers assembled in Egypt, Joseph then presented them and introduced them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, you can have any land that you want and set them up. Because by now, Jacob is a wealthy man. He has massive, massive amounts of flocks and herds. And Pharaoh gives him an amazing tract of land for his animals. And the family is reunited. The God dream has actually come to be. Remember when Joseph said, you will bow down to me? They bowed down to him asking for grain. It's an amazing, amazing narrative. And as time continues, Jacob dies in Egypt. But before he died, he made Joseph promise him that he wouldn't bury him in Egypt, that he would return to Canaan, to the land of his fathers. 
and be buried there in Canaan. And so the whole family treks back to Canaan. They bury Jacob and then come back into Egypt. And when they get back to Egypt, the brothers kind of start looking around a little bit. Because like they knew that the dad was keeping everything cool as long as he was alive, but now that dad's gone, they're worried that, that something may happen. Here's, here's how the Bible describes the moment. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You intended to harm me, but God meant it for good. The detours never derail a God dream unless we let them. Joseph saw it through and was faithful throughout his life, regardless of what the circumstances or situation dictated. He was always faithful. And because he was always faithful, God always used every single situation and circumstance for good. I don't know where you are right now. I don't know. Maybe you're in the middle of absolutely just living the dream. Maybe, maybe you right now are in the pit. Maybe you feel imprisoned by circumstances, by the situation you find yourself in. All I can tell you is that God intends it all for good. For good. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We need God dreams in our lives. We, we need to ask him, what, it, what, is, what is your dream for me, through me? Did you know that, that God has a dream for everyone if you are drawing breath you're created in the image of God and he has a dream for your life that begins in a relationship with him the Bible says in 2nd Peter that God wants everyone to come to repentance that God wants everyone to begin to live the dream he has for them in a relationship with Christ that that's where it begins but then he's got a dream that is tailor-made for you, a tailor-made for me. But it starts in a relationship with Christ. It starts when you choose to respond to his amazing grace and enter into a relationship with Christ, forgiven of every single sin. Anything that you've ever done, everything you've ever done, you don't want anybody else to know about. God says the blood of Christ and what he did on the cross and in his resurrection is sufficient to facilitate the forgiveness of it all. If you will just accept it. If you'll just personally receive it. In just a moment, as a church, we get to 
extend that invitation to you that God has already made. You don't have to pass a test or attend a class for six months or anything like that. All you have to do is choose to respond to that grace initiative, to surrender your life to the only one who will never take advantage of that surrender. I want to ask you just for a moment to bow your heads. If you would, just bow your head and close your eyes. If you're here and you have never stepped into that relationship with Christ, then I I want to invite you to pray just right now in response to his grace. Just silently talk to God and say something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I know that I need you. I know that I need your forgiveness. And so I confess my sin to you. And as I confess it, I'm turning away from it. I'm leaving it behind by your power and your grace. Lord, I ask you to forgive me And I choose to follow you from this moment forward. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me, that you rose again from the dead. And in this moment, I'm stepping into the new life that you promise. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. Amen. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for just a moment. Because if you just prayed that prayer, then as a church, we get to, we want to come alongside and help with what's next. And the way that we do that is Just a couple of things. Number one, if you would, take out the program that you were taking notes on that you got when you came in. And just right now, if you would, start filling out the Connect card that's inside the program. Just fill that out. Your name and and contact information that we always keep in-house. And just after that contact information, you'll notice there's a place to indicate there, I committed my life to Christ this week. And as you, as you fill that card out, once you've finished it, you can tear it off along the fold. There's a perforation there. And if you would, just tear that card off. And when we dismiss in just a moment, I want to ask you to hand that card to one of our ushers, one of our hosts. Just hand it to them. And that will initiate a conversation, like I said, where we can help with what's next because this is just the beginning for you. This is the beginning of living your life following Christ as a part of his family of faith. And then the second thing I want to ask you to do as you finish that card, if you would right now just silently but unmistakably just raise your hand up high over your head. Just raise your hand and hold it up for just a brief moment. Your hand in the air being a physical statement of the spiritual commitment that you just made. 
and know that you're surrounded by people who want to help. You can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.